Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hey, heroes. I am at Metatopia this weekend in Morristown, New Jersey. That's November 2nd through the 5th, if you're listening to this in the future. But if you're here too, please say hi. I can't possibly play all the games here, so I'm dying to hear what you've been playing. Next weekend, I'll be at a catacon in Dayton, Ohio, and the week after that is PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hopefully, our paths will cross. This week, I sat down to chat with James Mendez-Hodes, a game writer on a number of games, including Seventh Sea Katai, which we visited in our last episode. I wanted to talk to James specifically because he has a lot of experience writing new settings for established games, and to talk about the process of taking something we might be used to playing one way and making it a whole new kind of experience through setting. I think we did that, but I feel like this episode also has a lot of good general advice for writing settings and writing outside of your current knowledge base. To me, it fits really nicely with our Unfamiliar Heroes episodes in that games can be tools we use to explore other experiences, and the journey to creating a compelling story that's outside your own lived experience can be so educational if you approach it that way. But anyway, games are really great, so let's get to the show. So joining me this week is James Mendez-Hodes. We're going to talk a little bit about taking games to places that they kind of literally haven't been before by writing new settings for existing games. So, hey James! Hi. Uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you on here. So uh, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, some projects you've worked on or places people might know you from? Oh, sure. Hi, I'm James Mendez-Hodes. I go by James or Mendez or Lula, depending. All's good. And uh, I am a game writer and developer uh, for tabletop role-playing games. Stuff you might have heard of that I have written uh, I work on uh, 7C Second Edition. Uh, I'm writing on most of the book, uh, most of the game line after the core book. Mm-hmm. I've also written for Urban Shadows for Magpie Games, uh, Monster Hearts uh, from uh, Avery Alder and Buried Without Ceremony, Scion from Onyx Path Productions, um, and a few other things here and there. Oh, awesome. What, what did you write for Monster Hearts? I didn't know about that. Uh, I wrote exactly four pages of Monster Hearts, and they are the four pages of my work I'm most proud of. Oh, yeah. Um, I co-wrote a guide to how race and, to a lesser extent, religion impact Monster Hearts play, together with uh, Ciel Saint-Marie and Gian Shim. They're pages 40 to 43. Ooh, okay. I'm going to have to go back and read those when we're done. <laughs> That's very cool. I had no idea. Um, we we got to talking uh, because we I I just did uh, talk to John Wick about Seventh Sea, uh, and we he mentioned your work a little bit working on the settings, and John and I talked a lot about converting uh, the system and the differences between Western and Eastern heroes, and there were a lot of questions uh, from listeners for that episode and and for others actually. There's a lot of like. There's a lot of hesitation and worry and fear, I think, that comes with settings that are so closely tied to the real world. Um, in 7C, yes. they're analogs, but they're very close. In Scion, you know, the pantheons come from real world cultures. So I was hoping that you could help demystify the process, or at least your process for writing these settings, um, what kind of thought goes into it, how this how this stuff looks, uh, to, to maybe put some put us at ease a bit and and let us be rest assured that it's in good hands um oh well thank you yes I, yes um 
this is pretty much my whole job and I am happy to help. Cool. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, why don't we start with 7th C, since I think that's what's going to be uh, most fresh in our heroes' minds. Excellent. John mentioned your work on the Japan setting, I believe, but it sounds like you worked on, on most of it. Yes. So our goal with Kitai was to represent as much of Asian and Pacific culture and geography as possible, mm -hmm. uh, because we don't want anyone to be left out. So... Uh, I was involved in creating and especially naming a lot of the regions that we came up with as analogs of places in the real world. So the, our analog of Mughal India is Agnavarsa. It's a sprawling empire which is kind of reaching its limit uh, and is now beginning to fragment under uh, the weight of rebellious uh, client states and controversial rulers. Uh, there is Fuso. Uh, which is our analog of Japan, taking influence from very late Warring States period Japan, but with a much more uh, pronounced influence from Ainu culture, uh, the indigenous people of Japan who were slowly marginalized and forced into the north over the course of history. But in our version of the game, uh, their culture is front and center in Fuso. Mm. Uh, there's also... Uh, Nagaja. Uh, Nagaja represents the former Khmer Empire and uh, a lot of mainland Southeast Asia. It's a fragmented ex-empire full of tiny states in the forest and towering temples, um, which is trying to figure out whether its destiny in the future is to become an empire again or to be a loose confederation of little states. There's also Shincho. Uh, Shincho is the largest and probably the oldest state in Kitai. Uh, it's analogous to uh, late Ming Dynasty and early Qing Dynasty China, um, and has just been taken over by a new Khazar Dynasty. Uh, Khazars are kind of like the Mongols. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Shincho is figuring out what its government is going to be, and it's full of outlaws and rebels, just like in Wuxia uh, fiction. Uh, there's also Khazaria, the uh, ancient homeland of the Khazars, who are kind of like the Tartars or Mongols, uh, and the gateway to the Crescent Empire and a lot of the rest of the Seventh Sea setting. Mm -hmm. And Han. Uh, Han is our analog of Joseon Korea. It's a client kingdom of Shenzhou and relies on Shenzhou for military protection. Their army isn't very strong. Their navy's pretty good, but it's kind of mismanaged, and it's the pinnacle of art and learning uh, in all of Kitai. We also have a couple of other nations, which uh, I'm a little bit more hands-off on, but there's the Kiwa Islands, which represent uh, the Pacific Islands from Indonesia east to Hawaii. And then there's Kamara, which is our mythic Australia. Mm, cool. Did you pick the the places that you were going to be settings, or was there uh, was that kind of a decision made by John, or kind of a, a little bit of both? So we had an initial pitch meeting for Kitai when we talked about what we wanted to do in terms of nations and systems and so forth, mm -hmm. and we had a few locations on the table. Japan was a definite. China was a definite. Australia was a definite. Uh, and aside from that, we didn't have a lot that was well-defined. And we thought at first that we weren't going to have space for that many nations, but as the project grew and the Kickstarter started to take off, um, we have expanded our scope a lot. So uh, I pushed really hard for the inclusion of Han and Nagaja and kind of came up with the like the 
uh, the concepts for those nations as they will appear in as they will appear in Kitai. The ones we were sure we were going to have at first were, I think, Japan, China, and India and Australia. Mm-hmm. But yeah, now we have a we have a full eight uh, full eight regions. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of them are very large and encompass a, a lot of cultures. And we're hoping in the source books to focus in on indiv- individual highlights and elements of those cultures. Awesome. Uh, John and I talked a little bit about the uh, initial Seventh Sea with the European country settings that he's got. And he talked a little bit about like what they are. They're sort of this time period France or this time period England. Was there uh, any push to keep these settings within a similar like historical time period or just kind of whatever seemed like the most fun to play with? So we've been working mostly with dates around 1668. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the date at which 7C by default takes place, although you can easily shift it around. So the conceptions of the nations that I have mentioned all take influence from what those nations were like in 1668, a little bit before and a little bit after. Okay. Although some nations look a little bit more in one or the other direction. Okay. Agnavarsa, for example, uh, is likely to be pretty on the nose in 1668. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things are going to be going on there that are very similar to what happened in uh, real India in 1668 under the uh, rule of Aurangzeb. Other countries look a little bit more, uh, a little bit further back. For example, Fuso is heavily influenced by Warring States era Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't want to have the relative peace and security of Edo period Japan, which Japan was actually in in 1668. We wanted um, a lot more warfare and gunfire and betrayal. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I think so. But in but in almost all cases, we start from 1668, from where the country is in 1668, and then we travel from there. Awesome. Thank you. I couldn't remember which... I knew he mentioned a specific date, and I just completely blanked yeah. on it. So... <laughs> But we also talked about how he wasn't entirely beholden to history for a, a lot of decisions for that. So No, nor am I. <laughs> yeah. um, I just find history really cool. Yeah, well, so I mean... It's easy for me to nerd out about it. It is pretty cool. How did you name the, uh, the, uh, the countries? The naming things in RPGs is my favorite thing ever. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it, I, I know a lot of other players dread it, but it's absolutely my favorite thing. So with 7C, we have this tradition of looking back into uh, a certain region's history and naming that region after a mythic name for the same place, an unused name for the same place, uh, a less common languages uh, term for the same place. So uh, for the regions in Kitai, uh, Fuso is the name of a mythical island which was supposed to lie off the eastern coast of Asia. Uh, Shenzhou is one of the ancient and less commonly used names for China. It's also the name of Michelle Yeoh's ship in Star Trek now. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, with a couple of other with a couple of other regions, uh, Han is a less common name for Korea, but one which is commonly used in the Korean language, but not very well known in the West. Um, with some of the other nations, I went back into the etymology of one of the nation's current or past names and tweaked something. Uh, for example, for Nagaja, uh, that name is based on Kambuja, the uh, one of the historical names for Cambodia. Um, 
Kampuja comes from a story about the founding of Cambodia in which a prince married a serpent princess to found the nation. Uh, so I thought that, well, why don't we just highlight the, the Naga princess in our version? So I came up with Nagaja switching out uh, Kambu for Naga. Oh, that's cool. Thanks. I hope I have all the details right there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Someone will let us know. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that some of the the nations, the the settings writing, you're more hands off in relation to. So what is what does this look like? Um, it's not just you then writing all of these things. So uh, there's John as the lead developer. Mm-hmm. There's Mike Curry mm-hmm. uh, as the systems lead, who decides everything the dice and the character sheets are going to do going into the game. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, Leonard Balsara. Uh, Lenny is the creative director. So he manages some of the other developers. Mm-hmm. And then the line developers, the, the creative front line until we actually get to the writers, are me and Shoshana Kesak. Okay. But each of us is going to uh, manage a stable of writers. And I can't tell you who all of those people are right now <laughs> because the uh, we're just figuring that out. But yeah. I'm really excited about them. All right, so so you've got a bunch of writers working on these settings, all yes. presumably with their own areas of expertise. Yes. So we we talk a, a lot on the show about playtesting to go through iterations of games, particularly their particularly their mechanics. Is there some kind of equivalent for writing these settings for for making sure everything uh, feels right and is right? Like, factually? Yeah. How does that work? When you create a fictional work, whether it's an RPG or a video game or a novel or anything like that, uh, when you create a fictional work that has signifiers that point to people in the real world, and Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's all fiction, whether you you like it or not as a creator, it's going to happen. Uh, If you have signifiers that point towards the real world, saying this is a fictional analog and therefore we can do whatever we want and it doesn't matter if people from the demographics we're talking about might feel hurt by this don't matter is not a thing that we get to say. If your signifiers point to people in the real world, you have to consider how you affect those people in the real world. And you have to consider whether you're telling their story in a way they would like you to tell. Mm -hmm. The easiest way to get this right is to hire people who are personally or academically uh, or professionally familiar with those regions. Uh, and that's really cool when it happens. But the vicissitudes of scheduling and hiring and so forth don't always make that possible. So just in case that happens, I have a pretty strict protocol that I hold myself to, uh, which is pretty similar to what a lot of my co-writers do in terms of how I come up with these things. So in my case, I tend to start from historical and mythological sources, so I do a lot of personal research on, for example, things like national epics. Um, I really like when I'm writing about a certain country to start from the national poetry of that region as an inspiration. So when I wrote uh, Persis, for example, our analog of our analog of 17th century Persia in the Crescent Empire supplement, uh, I got myself a copy of the Shanama, which is this awesome Persian national epic. And it's full of full of beauty and poetry and totally awesome stories and totally awesome characters. So that was a major influence on where I took uh, Persis. Then as the writing process goes on, uh, writing is always iterative. 
um, the same way that playtesting is. Um, you write drafts, you revise them, editors work on them. And especially in 7C, I'm almost never working by myself. So uh, it's important for me to bounce ideas off of other people, mm-hmm. both because they may have a perspective that I am not able to see because my head is down in the work or because they actually have scholarly or cultural training. So we work with cultural consultants whom we hire to check over the work and to point out trouble spots or places where we might accidentally uh, we might accidentally hurt someone in the real world that we didn't know about because we didn't have that context for. Mm. And at this point, this late in 7C as a game line, we also have some... We also have some important sort of general principles that we have learned to apply to all of our settings. Mm -hmm. So one of the rules that we have is that in our version of the world and in our version of history, indigenous people never get totally fucked. Mm -hmm. So there can be, there are, uh, there are Thayan colonies in the Americas, in uh, the continents we call Wabanakic and Aslan. There are Thayan colonies in our version of the Caribbean, the Atabayan Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Thayan influence all over the place, but Thayans never seize control away from locals in a way that prevents the locals from self-determination and prevents them from controlling their own destinies. Because that way, if we did that, those people couldn't be heroes. In some places, this gives us a version of the world that's very, very similar to the real one. So, for example, in our version of Central America, in the New World Sourcebook, uh, I worked on the Nahuacan Alliance, which is our version of the Mexican Triple Alliance. We So the indigenous people never get fucked rule uh, resulted in our analog of uh, Hernan Cortez actually losing his war to take over the Aztec Empire. This was this was a pretty major change looking at the the future of uh, the Nahuacan Alliance and the future of our analog of Mexico. But at the time when Cortez was operating in the Aztec Empire, the Aztec Empire actually had a pretty solid cultural and military control over the region where it was. Uh, Cortez's technology and Spanish tactics and horses and firearms and so forth had a much smaller impact on how battles actually went in uh, the Mexican Triple Alliance than history commonly leads us to believe. Most of Cortez's army was made up of angry locals who were sick and tired of the Aztecs colonially dominating them. Mm. So... Making that small change, uh, Cortez wins to Cortez loses, didn't overturn everything that we knew about Central America. Going forward in the future, um, it probably will if we uh, did 7th C, you know, 1768 or 1868. Mm -hmm. But in that time and place, wasn't that invasive. Uh, Conversely, maintaining Ainu influence on uh, Japan has changed what Japan feels like to me. Historically, uh, Ainu culture was uh, heavily, very thoroughly marginalized, and very relatively few people uh, nowadays in the real world still identify as Ainu, even though the Ainu lived in Japan before the Yamato people fa- uh, wound up there. So samurai fiction commonly shows uh, a mainstream Japanese view of what Japan looks like, even when it's fictionalized. Or it shows a Western viewpoint on what we think Japanese perspective on Japan might look like. Mm -hmm. So in Fuso, in Katai, the primacy of Ainu culture and the fact that in our version, uh, the Ainu culture has mixed with mainland Katayan culture 
has made a lot of like material and visible changes. Um, the clothing, for example, is different. In Fuso, in addition to the more common uh, kimono and yukata and uh, those kinds of uh, those kinds of Chinese influenced robes that uh, you would commonly see, the Fusoese also wear Ainu tunics, which look a little bit more like a Korean hanbok, and they have these distinctive uh, colorful geometric patterns that actually have um, that actually have some religious significance sometimes uh, that tend to cluster around the hems and the sleeves and then spread across the the rest of the outfit and this is this is one of my favorite things because it's a tiny change but it creates patterns and visual themes that you're going to see everywhere in Fuso Indigenous Japanese religion, uh, that is, Japanese religion uh, before the influence of things like Buddhism and Christianity, in the mainstream is called Shinto. Uh, and then uh, Ainu, Ainu practices are uh, described with one of various words, but Koshinto is one of them. And uh, there, are, there are some shared concepts, uh, like the idea of gods or spirits inhabiting uh, places in nature and physical things, but... Uh, there are certain distinctly Ainu concepts that um, we're trying to emphasize. Uh, for example, bear worship was a really big deal in in Ainu culture. Uh, it's a little bit less so these days because bears are now extinct in Japan because of hunting. But traditionally, the Ainu often venerated, or many Ainu populations uh, venerated bear gods. Um, so a bear spirit would inhabit the wilderness and then would govern some of the actions of some of the bears in the real world. Uh, and occasionally would enter into the body of a bear, uh, for one reason or another, sometimes to interact with humans. So the Ainu had, uh, very particular sets of rituals where they would hunt bears in the wild, keep bears as something that we might, that something that might look to us like a pet, but which was in fact a little bit more, uh, a little bit more spiritually charged, and venerate bears in traditional rituals. So, Working with that um, in 7C, you'll see that on the on the cover of the Fuso source book, there seems to be a samurai riding a bear uh, into battle, which is pretty cool, I think. But yeah. I just wanted to clarify that from the bear's perspective, the samurai is sitting on her shoulders like a parrot. Oh. The bear thinks the bear is the main character. The samurai probably agrees. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. I hope so. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um... While we're while we're on this particular track, I don't want to forget. I want to give you an, a chance. Do you want to weigh in on the katana debate? The katana debate. Did oh, J- yeah. Did John bring the subject up? Yes. I just want to give you your uh, your fair share. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hate katanas. They're the second best weapon for every occasion, and I tend to always lose fights with them against anybody wielding any other kind of weapon. Mm. I I do mm-hmm. Japanese martial arts, but. So I'm a little bit personally grumpy about katanas, and um, there are other swords I like better and other weapons I like better for reasons which I can opine about at length. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is that every nerd can opine at length about katanas, so if you bring up katanas in any kind of a nerd context, um, you will have an argument Mm -hmm. at your hands, which unfortunately we're not in a position to to, uh, solve with katanas. (laughs) So... So I've been I've been in in my conception of Fuso emphasizing other kinds of weapons mm-hmm. like a there's this other kind of sword called the Tach which is still very popular in our version of in our version of Japan uh, firearms are also a really big deal the way they were in in Japan in the in the 1500s but John had a great idea the other day which uh, I'm really hoping makes it into the final version where 
Katana are growing in popularity in Fuso, mm -hmm. and there is now a sort of, they now have a sort of cult following which insists that they're the best weapon for every occasion and that you can solve every problem with a Katana. Mm -hmm. And I really like the idea that having, uh, having this actually present in the setting allows your characters to have this argument in character. And it also allows the GM to say things like, okay, great, you guys argue about katanas for the whole rest of the ride to the capital city, and the rest of us don't hear about it. Next. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, yeah, that, that's how I'd run my game. As soon as that <laughs> conversation starts, just like, nope. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, it, it never goes anywhere, no one's mind ever gets changed, and every sentence begins with, well, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, so it sounds like... 7th C is in progress, very definitely. A lot of hands working to make this. Yes, very much a team make, effort. Yeah, to make this good and to make this something, yeah, that, that all of our, our players can, can get behind. Yes. Um, so that's good. So, yes, we won't get everything right, but hopefully we'll get a lot of things right. And we make when we make mistakes, hopefully we'll have the humility to listen to people who point them out. Yeah. That's the hope. Hmm. So I, when I when I ask about playtesting, I like to ask uh, if there was anything like very surprising or funny that came up. So I, I feel like with this process, it may be a little different. Like as corrections come up, they may be they may not be very funny. They might be kind of a bummer. But I just thought I would ask if if anything was sort of oh, okay. amusing or, or interesting. Um, sure. Can I can I talk about playtesting for a different project? Sure. One of the games that I didn't mention in my little mini resume earlier, is Thousand Arrows. Thousand Arrows is an Apocalypse World hack about the historical Japanese Warring States period that I'm working on with Brendan Taylor at Galileo Games. Mm. So it's nice to have because I can store a lot of my stuffy historical ideas and personal opinions about katanas in this mm -hmm. game so that they don't have to mess up katai for everybody else. So yeah, Thousand Arrows is yeah powered by the Apocalypse, historical game uh, with a lot of mythological influence, but it's the kind of mythology that the Japanese people of 1590 believed in themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are things like mountain goblins or Taoist shamans in addition to your uh, samurai and ninja and so forth. So I do a lot of playtesting for Thousand Arrows myself, and we have... There have been some. There have been some really excellent moments that that taught me a lot. One that I always like to bring up is when Neil Raymond Price was uh, playtesting Thousand Arrows a couple of Metatopias ago, and I gave him a I gave him a one off power based on uh, Miyamoto Musashi's use of improvised weapons, where uh, his character could pick up pretty much any object, decide what weapon he wanted to use it as, and then use it that way for the whole rest of the game. So I eventually phased this power out for revision before I put it back in. But in the meantime, Neil had thrown his straw hat like it was some kind of chakram or shuriken and cut a guy's head off. He rolled up a tatami mat and used it as a maul and beat up everybody in a tavern. I'm, I'm sure if I'd, I'm sure if the playtest had gone more than two hours, he would have also found exciting things to do with his sandals and his belt and his allies. Um, so, uh, Neil brings this up anytime anyone mentions me, as well he should, because it was hilarious. Um, and I made some really, I made some excellent frustrated faces. So yeah, so that that was a, a that was a good memory and it taught me that sometimes sometimes you need to dial a power back less because it's too powerful and more because it ends up dominating the aesthetics of the game yeah. to the exclusion of anything else going on. Oh man. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that's that's my favorite. Uh, I screwed up in playtesting story. I, I love that. That's those are the stories I live for. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh man. Okay. So I want to talk about Scion a little bit too. Um, oh, sure. So so Scion is a game that is also like very very epic. Very you are very heroic. Um, mm-hmm. And so you worked on the second edition of Scion. Uh, yes. My understanding is is building the pantheons, right? Yes. So my my actual job I'm contracted to do. Mm-hmm on Scion is to write the uh, the Yoruba gods, the Orisha, the Chinese gods, the Shen, and the Hindu gods, the Devas. I also wrote a piece in there about how not to be racist or religiously intolerant. And awesome. I also kibitzed on a lot of the like the system development process and the early development process. And I wrote a bunch of Pantheon information for the early alpha of the game, which has since been phased out. Uh, but yeah, most of what I'm doing is writing pantheons and telling you about gods that you may or may not have heard of. Cool. Yeah. So these are these aren't analogs for things. These are actual cultures that we're getting discussed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The gods have the. It's so the depiction of religion in Scion is not a real depiction of religion. Some things about the world have, have changed mm-hmm. because it's it's been influenced by these mythic figures uh, throughout. Uh, throughout uh, history. But it's even harder for us to get a break on Scion by saying, well, the, these gods are actually fictional analogs of uh, of the gods because some of them have been extensively mythologized to the point where everyone knows and loves uh, Zeus and Hera and Osiris and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then others of them, like the Yoruba gods or the, the Hindu gods, are still actively worshipped by people who yeah. can and should have very strong feelings about them. So uh, we have to step very, very lightly, and we have to do a great deal of, like, mythical and thematic research for those. Mm, okay. Yeah, that was kind of my, my big point of curiosity, or is the differences between that, working with uh, material that is so definitely loved and uh, interacted with on a, on a real day-to-day basis versus uh, yeah. writing for Kitai. yeah. So I'm drawing on a lot of my academic background there. I studied West African religion as an undergraduate and then Eastern classics in uh, grad school. Um, so I'm drawing on a lot of those sources and a lot of the discussions that we had around them. And occasionally on like personal experiences, actually practicing these religions, mostly in the like African diasporic space. But yeah, we... Uh, Every time, every time we released something in Scion, there was there was this like indrawn breath of worry that we had accidentally said something horrific about some real person yeah. who we may or may not have known, but definitely cared about. <sighs> yeah, for Scion and stuff like that, do you have beta readers or anything? Uh, yes, okay. yes, lots and lots of beta readers and cultural consultants um, and helpful fans who surprisingly have really really strong academic or personal backgrounds in the material and who have been nice enough to point out to us when we mess something up. Oh. Nicely, I hope. Yeah. 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 For the, for the most part, nicely. So I was, I was really intimidated by the Scion fandom when I first started working on Scion because they all had really strong feelings uh, about the game. And some of them are very, very intense about um, their religious approach to some of the pantheons in their real lives. But as, as I've spent more time uh, talking to people on the, on the Onyx Path forums and talking to fans in the real world, I found, I found fans insight actually really helpful in a lot of ways. When, uh, when the preview of the Orisha came out, the forum started talking about, it and uh, a number of fans uh, actually complained about 
uh, a quote that I had used, which had uh, a very, it turned out to have a, I didn't know the origin of the quote, but it turned out to be very religiously charged for a religion other than the one that I was talking about. So they pointed that out. And uh, thankfully, this is an early draft. So I was able to remove it. And they also pointed out that um, some of the like some of the thematic choices that I'd made about uh, the Pantheon's strengths and weaknesses probably weren't ideal and in fact had some kind of unfortunate implications about the way uh, uh, player characters might interact with the Pantheon. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that they caught those because they were right and I had definitely made mistakes there. So um, we're going to be able to fix those going forward. Awesome. And I'm really glad about that. That's really cool. Yeah. So there are uh, a lot of folks, a lot of the heroes that listen to the show are interested in hacking and modding and messing with games in their own way. So do you have any any advice or any places that they might, might go look uh, if they're thinking about incorporating cultures that may not be their own lived experience into their games? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So that process of renaming things in 7C, mm -hmm. where we go back into the etymology of certain countries or certain persons or certain ideas name. And then uh, we look around, uh, we look around in that, in the history of that word until we find, um, until we find an analog that works, that evokes the real thing, but which is itself distinct and new. Um, I see that as kind of a microcosm for the way that hackers can look at cultural influences in role-playing games. Okay. So when you, if you see a concept, if you, suppose you see a cultural concept that you want to incorporate in, in a game. Let me think of an example. Uh, a lot of gamers are really interested in uh, religious influences, and they really like drawing inspiration from religion to grant uh, the material they're writing a, a numinous quality, or to help them organize their ideas, or to just to, or just to inspire them. And a lot of, a lot of creative people have a great deal of trepidation about working with material from a culture that isn't their own. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a dilemma that comes up here where um, if you only work with your own experiences, then you end up erasing everyone who doesn't think and look and talk like you. And we know erasure is bad. And if you go too far in the opposite direction and you depict cultures and people who aren't like you and don't get it right, then you have to deal with accusations of racism, appropriation, uh, heresy... Yeah. Things like that. When faced with a choice between erasure and possible appropriation, I would encourage other creative people to err on the side of representation. I would rather that someone tried to depict my culture and screwed it up than that they didn't try to depict it at all. That said, when you take on the challenge of representing a culture or religion or demographic that isn't your own, it's harder than writing about yourself. You have to listen to people who aren't like you. You have to find out... You have to... Um, talk to friends or hire cultural consultants who have context for these things that you don't have. You have to do more work, and then you have to learn more. But this is a process that I think makes better games and also helps us be better and more interesting people, because in that process, we learn about perspectives that aren't our own. So I will gladly uh, criticize a role-playing game for trying to talk about um, Asian culture and screwing it up, but I will always be thankful that at least they tried. Yeah. Because that's pretty much my whole job, too, when I'm not writing about myself, which is not that often, actually. So, yes, definitely err on the side of representation. Uh, and then also get it, get excited about the research that you're doing, because it's fun. And if, you, if you're like me, then 
like you look forward to reaching, reading national epics and then having these stories that you can tell your friends as you're working on stuff. Um, so yeah, get excited about the research and listen to the perspectives of people who are close to this material because they will often have recommendations as to what you can consume, watch, read, play, whatever that they feel represents uh, their own culture in, in a respectful and exciting way. Oh yeah. And don't be afraid of people telling you that you're wrong. Yeah. Because this is an important part of the iterative process. Same as if someone criticized a dice mechanic that you had or something like that. And it's easier to get defensive if someone says, like, this thing that you wrote was racist or this thing that you wrote was religiously intolerant or sexist or whatever. But we need those people because none of us are none of us are born knowing how to do representation. And all of us have to have experiences where people tell us that we're wrong if we're going to if we're going to become respectful humans, uh, let alone write respectful work. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. That falls in line with uh, a lot of stuff that we've talked about recently. (laughs) It all boils down to do your research, like talk to people, Mm -hmm. don't create in a vacuum. (laughs) Yes. There are, there are so many, um, there's so many, uh, source books that I remember reading, uh, early in my time as a gamer where, you know, I'd read through something and thought, um, you know, if they'd showed this to one Asian person, just one (laughs) Asian person, like they just like shown it to someone on the street. Um, we could have avoided all of this. Mm-hmm. And okay. now I am that Asian person, so. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Which actually, do you have any any tips or advice on like how to find beta readers or how to find people? I go to a lot of conventions, and that allows me to meet a lot of people who end up really helping me with my work. But conventions are expensive, and they take time. So failing that, getting on social media and spending time listening to other people is always a great way to a great way to ease into getting other people to listen to you. And uh, I know a lot of people have some, uh, probably have some trepidation about um, screaming into the void, as it were, that they're making something and they might be racist and can someone please come help? Uh And, uh, and in these cases, I, yeah, cultural consulting is work and sensitivity reading is work and Mm -hmm. you get much better work if you pay for it. And then also people don't die of exposure. So at some point you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is if you really want to be uh, if you really want to be sure about these things. But personally, given the the vast range of of things that I do in role playing games, very often I'm I'm willing to do cultural consulting work for lower rates than I am for other things because I'm just frankly terrified of what happens if I won't. Yeah. So if you if you, if anybody out there listening to this has questions about this material, please come ask me. You like my social media is linked from this from this interview and mm-hmm. I I don't have a huge amount of experience with every single culture in the world. Like I'm not sure I can help you with like Zulus, but I may well be able to find you someone who knows way more about Zulus than I do. And I can definitely give you guidance with the parts of Africa and Asia and South America and so forth that I am familiar with. And and like I said, even like even if you ask in like a ham-handed way, I'll always be glad that you're asking and messing that up instead of not asking at all. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, actually, that's a real good segue into wrapping up. Are you going to be at any conventions in the near future? Yes. I expect to be at Metatopia and PAX Unplugged next month. I'm thinking about doing uh, MidwinterCon in January. We'll, we'll see whether I can uh, drum up bus fare. But I will be at Metatopia at the Hyatt in Morristown uh, the first weekend, I think, of November. And then at PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia the third weekend of November. 
Awesome. Yeah, the the dates will probably be in the uh, the bottom of the show because we're doing those too. Cool. And and where can we find you online? You can find me at Lula Vampiro on Twitter. You can find my personal website, lula.transneptune.net slash RPG. Or you can just go to lula.transneptune.net if you also want to like read unrelated poems or listen to me talk about martial arts. And I am I'm on Facebook, Lula.vampiro, and I'm on uh, Google Plus at with this name, James Mendez Hodes. And you're right. We will link those in the show notes so folks can find you. Cool. Thank you so much, James. This has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah. I know I feel a lot better, so <laughs> about a lot of things. Excellent. Huge thanks again to James for being on the show, and keep an eye out for his upcoming work in 7th Sea, Kitai. All his links are in the show notes, and I'm going to go play some cool games at Metatopia. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier mostly on Twitter at Modifier Podcast. We also have a Tumblr, Facebook, and G+, with varying levels of upkeep success, all under the same Modifier Podcast name. You can email me directly with questions, comments, or show suggestions at modifierpodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an incredible family of RPG podcasts that include shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, Adventure, Neoscum, System Mastery, and Talking Tabletop. Adventure is an actual play podcast hosted by Pranks Paul that focuses on generating fan fiction for established books, TV shows, and movies through tabletop gaming. Adventure will feature a rotating cast of players in a variety of media properties. Find out more about all these shows at oneshotpodcast.com. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then.